Hello and welcome to The Real Podcast, produced by Real Kombucha, non-alcoholic fermentation at its finest, and presented by me, John Wilkes. This is our second episode. Uh, You'll find the first one on our blog or on any of our podcasting channels. And we're continuing very much in the vein that we established in that first episode. Allow me to explain what I mean by that. Now, first and foremost, our blogs and our podcasts are an attempt to document the adventure that we're on. We launched Real Kombucha uh, towards the end of 2017, and it's been a wonderful journey so far. We've met some fascinating, passionate people along the way. So we use our digital platforms to help spread their word too. Now, these people are experts in their field, so it's a real privilege to spend time with them, learning about what it is that they do. And we figured that we'd, we'd want to share that with you as well. So for this episode of The Real Podcast... I came down to Bristol, and I have to be honest, there were three motives at play in doing that. Firstly, it was to find out about the booming vegan and plant-based food scene that has found a home in these parts. It's so booming, in fact, that articles across the web last week claimed that Bristol has more vegan-related Google searches than anywhere else in the world. And secondly, I wanted to get inside the mind of some of the chefs serving that plant-based scene. I wanted to find out how veganism might represent a wonderful form of constrained creativity to a chef. And lastly, of course, I wanted to cheekily eat some of their amazing food. Well, wouldn't you if you had the chance? Ultimately, what I think I found was a scene and a city that embraces and celebrates open-mindedness. But before we jump to any conclusions, let me introduce the cast. I'll be chatting to Rob Howell, the head chef at Root a veg-first restaurant in the ultra-hip Whopping Wharf. I'll be chatting to Elliot and Tessa Lidstone, the head chef and the co-owner of Boxy, which is also in Whopping Wharf. And I'll be chatting to James Koch, the co-owner at Suncraft and the Gallimalfrey up on Gloucester Road. And it's at Suncraft, in fact, that I'll begin sitting down with James to ask him about those Google results. Some reporters went as far as to say that Bristol was now the recognised vegan capital of the world. So did that surprise him? To a certain extent, yes, because it all still feels very, very young and formative. But I suppose that's similar all over the world. Mm. I mean, Bristol itself, I've been here for 22 years and it, it gets under your skin, you get under its skin. You, you, you realise it's, it, is, it is a slightly peculiar place relative to much of the UK and the world and it's politic probably that it's quite a liberal I mean a republic kind of uh, mm. kind of society here very c- progressive so the, the sort of things that push people towards an interest in veganism such as animal welfare the environment and, and personal health they're all things you, you see here Over at Box E Elliot and Tessa Lidstone agree it certainly feels since we've opened, there's been a more, there's a lot more trend to vegetarian and vegan eating, definitely. I think the nice thing about it is that people are very interested in where their food comes from. So whatever it is that they're eating, whether they're eating vegetables or meat or fish, we get a lot of customers ask us where we get our produce from. Mm. Um, which I like, I have to say. I like that people are kind of a bit more self-aware 
I'm aware, of course, that I'm talking here to people that cook an awful lot of vegan food. So I wonder if perhaps their views are skewed slightly. So I head next door to Root, where I find head chef Rob Howell glowing over a freshly cooked sourdough. I wonder if you'd find a keen reception if you were to ask your average Bristolian on the street about veganism. It depends, possibly, where, which street you're walking on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think so. I really think so. Same here as in, in my diet. I'm not, I'm not a vegan in any sense, and I, I love my meat and fish, but definitely um, in the last couple of years, um, don't eat a quarter of the amount of meat or, like, kind of fish that I used to. Um, it's great here as well for, like, staff food. At the moment, we have ox tongue, and that's the only meat we have. Star food, wherever you used to work, is always trim, or it would always be minced meat, or, or something, or some sort of curry you've made with some trim. Um, it's great that here, we're, all we have is vegetables, and you feel better for it. Yeah, and I think that shows kind of in the whole of Bristol, in, in, in the UK, even slowly but surely, I think people are understanding that maybe we don't need to have a massive bit of meat with every dish, and it makes sense. Now, as someone who has flirted with vegetarianism and veganism for the past 20 years, it's clear to me that there's been a vast sea change in the way people think about these things, and one that seems to have become fairly mainstream fairly quickly. Rob himself has seen it firsthand. He tells me that when the restaurant launched only a couple of years ago, he was putting four meat dishes on the menu each day. Two years later, that has fallen to one. I found the um, the actual need and the demand for the meat dishes wasn't as... We'd have them on and sometimes not sell one, not even one uh, a day when we were doing kind of 50, 60 covers and, and slowly went down and down. And now we're at a point where I think people come because it's vegan. we have parties because, like, big tables kind of thing, and they come because there's vegan options. Especially through Christmas, people would choose it because out of ten friends, four of them are vegan. It's, it's great. It's not like you have to kind of, um, yeah, be held back, which is great. And if you're assuming that it's an older, traditionally left-leaning crowd that's embracing this move towards a more vegan, plant-based lifestyle, then James Koch has some news for you. From the early on, we recognised that we wanted to distance ourselves from... And there's, I mean, there's nothing nothing wrong with it at all, but inverted commas, hippie, hippie culture and polit- political veganism. Mm. Uh, and that this is something that is, if it's not already, going to go into the mainstream for good reason. And there's no, there's no need for us to be hard on the politic about it. Um, so we're, 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 it's an option. It's an option for good, healthy food that happens to be vegan. Uh, and, and, we're, and certainly it's a very broad demographic of people we've, we, we have in here. Funnily enough, when we were doing some research on it, we went down to a restaurant in London, and I, one of the things that really I was blown away by was the demographic in this, in this place that was, it looked like it was 14 to 20, and it was just really buzzing. It was, it, you know, it was a, it, I was talking to the kids in there, they travelled from the other side of London to be, to be there. Uh, here, I was expecting it to be this, similar here, it's, it's very, very broad from from a younger demographic that are interested in their health and it's you know it's, it seems to be the same with less young younger people smoking drinking taking drugs so it, that stands to reason that diet might be might be in the mix with those you know with those those things um, but but we're very broad from from younger teenagers to past retirements 
While James says that the heavy politic is unnecessary to his business, it's still clear that it's a key part of what turns people onto a more plant-based lifestyle. Later on in the conversation, he tells me... I personally will, will eat mostly vegetarian, uh, vegan, you know, slash vegan, and, and occasionally I'll, I'll have something that has fish, meat or dairy in it as, as and when I feel like it, or... I, you know, I'm, especially if, if it's if it's well well sourced and I can trust the, where it's come from, um, and probably that's how more people are behaving. Um, that said, I think people are becoming more and more aware of the reality of the industrial farming uh, complex, and it's uncomfortable. We're brainwashed, really, to not know what really goes on in these in, in, in these organisations, and and it's difficult to un, unlearn it once once you see the footage that that's very easily available on social media. Over at Box E, Tessa agrees. In fact, it's a key part of the ethos on which their restaurant thrives, an ideology that you might call ingredient-led rather than chef-led. It feels like a wonderfully egoless, humble way of cooking. And I have to say, I love it. Cheese is the best example. I mean, the cheesemonger that we use, she pretty much exclusively sources cheese from the neighbouring counties. Mm. But you think how much amazing cheese is produced in Somerset, mm. um, Dorset, you mm. know, Gloucestershire, mm. uh, just, just literally a stone's throw from mm. where we are. But the same with vegetables, I mean... Um, there's so many, so many beautiful vegetables um, produced really close and big fruit farms like Newcross Fruit Farm and um, they grow loads of asparagus. We get quite a lot of customers come in um, who have allotments and they'll give us produce that they've got too much of and uh, my dad has an allotment as well and um, he's always given us um, spare produce and... People, people like the fact that because we're a small restaurant and they know that Elliot changes the menu regularly and mm. if something comes in that's super fresh or our fishmonger or our veg supplier tells us that, oh, you know, this is we've got this at the moment and it's beautiful, do you want some? Mm. Like, yeah, let's do mm. with that. And almost working the other way round. So, you know, instead of Elliot saying, I'm going to have this... I'll have this regardless of whether it's ripe or not in, you know, it's not quite in season yet. We kind of do it the other way around. We've got a nice supplier with a lot, a nice relationship with a lot of our suppliers in that, mm. in that sense. Does she think that that expands beyond the glass walls of her shipping container restaurant? But I think also there was perhaps a point where people thought, ooh, like we can get strawberries 12 months of the year. Mm. Isn't that great? And then took a step back from it and thought, actually, maybe it's not so great. Mm. And it's kind of like the rise of consumerism saw that possible. Mm. And so people did it because it was possible. But now it's kind of like, oh, actually, just because we can do it or just because we can get strawberries 12 months of the year doesn't mean that we should. Mm. So people have kind of reached the boom and then gone gone back from that slightly and then I think things are enjoyed more I mean like Yorkshire forced rhubarb has just come into season mm. and it's like whoa you know mm. it's exciting mm. to have that and we'll have it 
on the menu for as long as we can get it because we love it you know asparagus like how lovely to have asparagus for that small period of the year when you can get it mm. but it doesn't mean that the rest of the year I'll buy it from Peru mm. I'll you know I kind of savor that moment where you can have something that's really tasty grown fairly local to you um you know, and then you kind of enjoy that more. So we've talked a lot about how veganism is opening minds and bringing people together, both in Bristol and beyond. Eventually, we have to stop talking, though, and start digging in. I see this as the ideal opportunity to get a bit cheeky and ask for a bit of free food. Elliot steps up to the plate, literally. He pulls on his apron and he talks me through a light but luscious dish the photos of which you can find on the blog post accompanying this podcast. And as he cooks, I wonder aloud about how he found his way into chefing. I'd always been into food anyway, and then I used to do a lot of uh, scouting. I used to go to scout camps, and obviously used to cook there, mm. uh, and for people as well. So I, I realised actually I quite enjoyed cooking for people, not just cooking in general. Mm. And after that, I kind of knew that the direction I was going to go into was catering, so I went to like I said, I went to catering college, went from there really. Mm. But yeah, from being in the scouts, I think I really kind of cemented you know, my idea that I was going to do something with food. Is there a scouting flavour combination? Some kind of baked beans and, <laughs> and wood fire? We always used to make yeah, like bolognese, that was like standard. And I always used to bring a, a couple, we used to get like the, you know, you'd give, be given all the ingredients at, at, the, at the camp. And I always used to bring some bits and bobs from home to tart it up a bit. <laughs> the secret weapon. <so. laughs> what is the secret weapon of <laughs> Scout Camp Bolognese? It's an OXO cube. <laughs> that was the secret. <laughs> so I wonder, is there a sense of restraint that comes with preparing vegan dishes as a trained and celebrated chef? Are those vegetables limiting? Do you long for a meat or a fish to go with them? Now, Rob Howell recalls his apprehension on the day that Josh Eggleton, the owner of Root, asked him to think vegetables first. So when kind of Josh said about it, I was a little bit unsure. My background, I've worked in three uh, very good fish restaurants, so my background was kind of fish, and then worked at the parent trap for five years. Um, yeah, veg- vegetables wasn't my my forte as such. But no, it's, it's, it's been amazing. Um, starting in the kitchen, equipment-wise, we have nothing. We still do. I kind of wanted, said to Josh, oh, I need a vat pack machine, I need a this, that, and you don't need any of it, and when you strip it back, it's, almost, it's, it's, it's kind of more exciting to go back to basics, and we've got a couple of inductions and, uh, and, a, and a char grill, and we do absolutely fine. Back at Box E, Elliot muses on the same question. I think it's been sensible in looking back, not just sort of concentrating on, on an ingredient, it's so easy to put cheese with something or dairy in something without even thinking as sort of classically trained you would do mm. so it's just kind of working back so you take whenever I, I do something vegetarian or, or a vegan dish I take the, the main component of whatever it might be and then work back from that and try and make it so it's sort of everything harmonises it and not have a, a dairy product or meat product as a you know as a substitute for something I think that's the, the way I look at it I mean every season's got its own sort of wonderful fruit or vegetable whatever it might be so it's just kind of taking whatever's around at the time and just really emphasizing that once again it's about reaching for what's around you and keeping an open mind tessa agrees some people have very set ideas of how a vegetable is going to taste Mm. like beetroot Mm. um but then 
they'll taste it and kind of think, oh, there is another way of eating this and it doesn't have to just be kind of pickled in a jar. Although I love any type of pickled food, so I'm not going to diss a pickled beetroot. Meanwhile, Elliot has finished cooking my lunch, so I ask him to talk me through what he's put together. Yeah, so I've just cooked a so it's roasted leek with goat's curd, capers and some Jerusalem artichoke crisps. Um, so leeks are lovely at the moment, so I really wanted to do something with leeks. Um, so you're starting there with that Starting off thing. with the leeks, yeah. Um, and then so I steam them and obviously if you roast them, you get that really car- lovely caramelised flavour. Mm. And I want, wanted something um, for a bit of tartness, so the goat's curds, obviously got the creaminess of that, mm. and the sort of lactic flavour of that. Mm. Um, and then the, the Jerusalem Artichoke crisps, um, they've got that lovely texture to obviously, so the leeks soft and you get the texture of that and the softness of the goat's curd, and then the capers bring another sort of acidity to play as well. So, mm. yeah, it all kind of works together. Mm. And so you would visualise that beforehand, or...? Um, yeah, I kind of visualise it, and then sort of in my head I can taste taste all the bits together, you know, individually, and then work what, think what would work with that texturally, and then, you know, once you put, put it on the plate, then you, as soon as you taste it, you know what might need tweaking, and more acidity, less acidity, and... Yeah, just experience as well, I think. I suppose if you make music, you, you can play the piano and you can mm. you play the piano, you don't have to read the music. You mm. just know what's going to work. So I think it's as simple as that, really. Mm-hmm. Which is just, that's what you do every day, in and out. It's mm. second nature, I guess. Now, I'm intrigued by this idea of a chef being able to taste things in their minds. Does Rob have that same culinary clairvoyance? Yeah, definitely. Some of the dishes kind of go on without fully sitting down, eating the dish as a whole. You know the elements, but sometimes you just got to kind of go for it. Some of the dishes that we've created, of uh, the hispy cabbage with seaweed butter, pickled shallots and radish, that was literally a dish when I first opened where we had nothing and we were really busy one lunch. We'd ran out of so many things that I kind of chucked it together without like even thinking about it. Um, and it just it's, it, a year later obviously through the seasons it changed but it's still still on the menu kind of thing so sometimes it is like you kind of just have to run with it but then sometimes you do we do sit down and kind of go right well let's actually taste this because it is a bit strange like not strange but it's not the straightforward kind of meat and two veg we, we do try and kind of not push the boundaries we're not breaking any we're not doing anything crazy new the main thing we'd like to make is just actually ha- making food that that you want to eat that's actually tasty kind of sometimes you have to just put away your kind of chefy chefiness um trying to make it look most beautiful and kind of go with we've got like some pakoras on the menu that are totally vegan gluten-free and we serve it with some salted plum and pickle plums but to eat it's just reminiscent of going to your curry house and having do you know what i mean yeah. it's not blow, make, breaking boundaries or anything but it's no but it is it's tasty and, and we're, we're busy and people like it so it's great now we're on a roll i love digging into the way that people access their creativity so i pepper rob with more questions where does he get his inspiration it's through not one thing but many things um social media is is changed kind of everything i think cooking wise um and kind of sharing ideas and um you're constantly every single day seeing hundreds well on instagram you're seeing hundreds of dishes kind of thing and i think some obviously obviously some are going to stick with you and, and you'll all definitely take inspiration from that and i think people that, like you have to you have to say you take inspiration from that because you possibly you can't possibly not um 
I love to eat out, as in I don't eat, I don't eat as much as I used to. Um, but you definitely draw inspiration from that. When it, it makes a massive difference when you actually go out and you realise what you like to eat and what style of food you like to eat, bringing that back into the kitchen. We went to Ivan Ramen. I had a ramen there, which was amazing. And there was like some a, a cauliflower dish with like a koji butter, but the, the it was like a curry sauce and it, it was amazing. And that was what kind of stuck with me. So we came back and tried to create like a really mild curry sauce, but it's totally vegan. Um, roasted it with like a nut butter instead of using instead of using cream, and I was really happy with it. Um, I, I kind of thought like you wouldn't know it's not like a chicken based kind of meats meat thing. So we've roasted some celeriac. Um, we kind of to riff off of almost like a curry dish so we were going to do some like some rice or uh, like some puff rice or something but we've gone for like tapioca crisps so um, and some roasted salt baked celeriac so that's the kind of uh, chicken element almost of it um, in the curry sauce we're just working on it now it hopefully should be ready today and yeah really happy with that Elliot is much the same it's always on the back of my mind always something's ticking away and thinking about stuff and I always write things down and Trying to find the time to play with this is always the tricky part. Mm. So I maybe scrabble bits together and do a prototype dish, and then have a taste of it, and get some other people to taste it, and then go from there. Really, so it's always just constant ticking away, and it never stops. <laughs> now, as my time in Bristol comes to an end, I'm left pondering the city's place in this burgeoning vegan scene. Certainly the rise in successful vegan Google searches would suggest that there's plenty here for the growing community. And undoubtedly the city's natural left-leaning politic has something to do with the ease with which that community feels at home. But there's also a sense of pride that fans the flames and helps it to flourish. When critic Jay Rayner came here to review Boxy, he spoke of something that he called the defined Bristolian style. Now I wonder what that might be. And it's Tessa who has the final word. I would say um, a fire for doing something different and being independent and standing up for that. Mm. Um, yeah, I I was kind of pleased to see that was still here when we reopened and that people really celebrate um, small business here mm. and or you know, creatives or individual artists doing their own thing and people are very kind of proud to say this is Bristol and mm. they're mine actually, you know, they, these people come from here. Our thanks goes to James Koch of Suncraft and the Gallimalfrey, Tessa and Elliot Lidstone at Boxy and Rob Howell at Root. You can grab your real kombucha, brewed for open minds, from www.realkombucha.co.uk Please subscribe to whichever channel it is that you're listening to this podcast on and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm.